So this idea of anti-memoir is to do life writing, to do like to write about your life and to and to see yourself as a legitimate speaking subject um, without endorsing that version of memoir that kind of insists on your specialness and individuality. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics. With me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In this episode, we're really excited to chat to Eleanor Savage. Eleanor's debut essay collection, Blueberries, was published by Text Publishing and Scribe UK in 2020. It was shortlisted for the 2021 VPLA and longlisted for the Stella Prize. She's written essays, stories and poems for a huge number of publications, such as the Sydney Review of Books, Paris Review Daily, Literary Hub, Guardian Weekend and Eureka Street, among many others. She's contributed to various anthologies and written for gallery and performance contexts. She also published a chat book, Yellow City, with the Atlas Review in 2019. Hello, Eleanor. Welcome to Tender Buttons. Hi, I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. We wondered if you could start with a reading for us. Sure. I'm going to read the first um, little, little bit of the essay, the titular essay, Blueberries, in my book, Blueberries. I was in America at a very expensive writer's workshop, maybe not expensive compared to, say, an MFA in America, but expensive enough that you'd have to save for a while to go or else have someone pay your way, which I did, which was for the purpose of furthering my career as a writer scholar under the auspices of a PhD in English at a university in Australia. I was in America at a very expensive writer's workshop and I met a new soul friend, a woman with whom I bonded so intensely but by the end, she told me how she, now she knew for sure that she wasn't a dyke. And by the end, I knew I still had it in me to love women like that. But in this case, I turned it off because it was something else. It was an innocent line of understanding between us. I was in America at a very expensive writer's workshop with my newfound soul friend complaining that our very expensive faculty was somewhat mediocre. Not the faculty member I was studying directly directly under, more specifically two of the very expensive male faculty who didn't prepare lectures and just ad-libbed at the almost all-female, almost all-forking-out-money-they-didn't-have students who stared blindly and adoringly into the giddy promise that a $2,000 ticket offers on you. I was in America at a very expensive liberal arts college sitting on my my rubber prison issue mattress, trying to punch words on my $200 laptop that would turn, I went to a very expensive writer's workshop and it wasn't perfect, into a salient political argument about the friction of class and gender and race against the surface of art in real-world institutions, and I was eating blueberries, and I was naked but for my black silk robe, and I was disappointed not for the first time that excellence was turning out to be mediocrity dressed up in money, and maybe masculinity too, not the masculinity that is visible to us, brawny and street smart, but real masculinity, which is reedy and tepid and well-read and invisible. Following on the back of your reading, um, so in that essay, as we heard, you talk about the ways in which we need privileges to be able to access these kind of elite institutions like universities and creative writing courses, but the fact that 
when we get there, those things, those places are often corrupt or they're sort of non-democratic or kind of they're not inclusive to everyone. But then at the same time, I think your essay kind of also holds the idea that we also often need these privileges to be able to write, right? You need the time, you need the space, you need guidance. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that maybe as a writer, as an educator, are they different? Are they the same depending on what mask you're wearing? It's such a kind of, um, it's a complex question because it kind of describes a lot of the tensions I think that govern my life and that govern the lives of many writers, which is that you're, you know, if you're writing and you're also a politicized person, you feel always compromised by participating in and colluding in institutions that are deeply undemocratic, right? But at the same time, this is your meal ticket, right? You need to have these, as you said, you need to have these, um, I would say, resources. Um, and they are, they, they're kind of, you can call them privileged resources because they're resources that are kept away from the majority of people. So the majority of people can't participate in these kind of cultures and rights. Um, but they're also resources that I think that everyone should have access to if they want them um, because they're not, they shouldn't be special privileges. They should be ordinary privileges. The privileges are of being entitled to a space where you can think and read and write in a community with guidance of, you know, the guidance of people who've been doing it for slightly longer than you, who can teach you and a community of your peers who you can learn from as well and learn with. That's the kind of, I mean, that's, that's what many of us want in our lives. Um, and it's, it's, I feel very conflicted about it often that how I earn my living, for example, is that I teach at a university. I love teaching. I love being in the classroom and I love working with students. Um, and in creative writing, it also is a little bit different. Like, I mean, in the university, it's probably one of the few spaces in the university where you can kind of come to class and talk about your family life, where you can talk about, um, your hopes and dreams, um, and be safe in that kind of environment. And so it's not that kind of, it doesn't have the same rigor as, you know, rigor in quotation marks as some of the other disciplines. So it can feel more personal and you can, you can do things in that classroom that it's a bit harder to do in other disciplines, I, I think. Um, but at the same time, you're very aware of like who's not in that room and getting that opportunity. And even within that room, what people are bringing into the classroom with them is not equal, right? People are coming from um, really different backgrounds and some of them are struggling at the outset with the basic, you know, the basic confidence that you need to start writing and to start believing that you're entitled to write and think for yourself. I think one of the things that I find, I found and find most like refreshing and feels really radical about Blueberries and your essays is the way in which you like put within the bodies of the essays, like things around the struggle to like make living as a writer work, as in like to be able to survive as a writer. And I guess there's two dimensions, there's criticisms of academia in different ways, but also within like the publishing industry. And why are those things important for you to contain within your like published essays and your published writing? I think that as a writer, I'm really, well, as you know, I'm really interested in meeting people in a text, whether it's a film or, a, you know, a visual image or a book or whatever 
Um, and I like to see how the sausage is made. And there's something probably, you know, um, something political about that. I sort of was a socialist child. And so, you're th- you, you know, I'm kind of <laughs> in some way I was brainwashed by socialists and, and trained in some way to kind of be looking for the distribution networks and to be like thinking about the chain of labor that produces an object um, and the cultural capital that can circulate around an object and either legitimize it or destroy it. Um, and on the other hand, I'm just a very nosy person and I really do want to know, um, and it's probably also not coming from a, a super wealthy background. I really do want to know like how much money people have in their bank accounts mm-hmm. and how they pay their rent and what they spend their money on and how they're not constantly in a tizzy about like getting their rent paid and things like that, which is obviously, um, very rude. And I, you know, it's, <laughs> you can't really get away with it all the time. Um, and so I have this like compulsion to kind of share how I live and how I do it because it's so rude to ask. Um, and part of that is also, you know, I'm a lot more comfortable now than I was when I was writing Blue Breeze. Um, and to kind of what that's meant for me has really transformed my life. Right. And it's really important to kind of acknowledge that when you're not hustling to make your rent every month, um, certain things become possible for you. Um, intellectually, I mean, not that I'm like doing any better work or anything, but I just have more leisure and more reading time and it's, um, and I'm less mentally unwell because of that. Right. Reading your work actually did make me think and, maybe I don't actually think it is a rude question I think it's just maybe something that people avoid it made me think really we should ask everyone who comes on the podcast how do you make a living because it it, Mm. I think that's definitely something I think there's this sort of myth that I have had a hard time reckoning with personally that you know you work really hard you publish a book and then you're rich and famous and you just write full-time and I actually think that that myth serves to exclude and ostracize ordinary people Mm -hmm. I mean every you know normal people people like us people like everyone from attempting to make art because there's there's this persistent myth that somewhere in the world there are artists who don't have to work and they're the people who define what art is. And I don't think that's actually true. I think, I, you know, I'm going through my Annie, Annie mm. Erno phase at the moment and she was a school teacher, right? Like mm. the person who just won the Nobel Prize for Literature made her living as a school teacher. I think that's really important mm. to point out that actually some of the finest writers have full-time jobs, part-time jobs, raise children, have complex lives, are politically engaged. You know, Svetlana Alexievich is an amazing kind of advocate for um, Belarusian, you know, uh, freedom of expression. She's a highly politicised person. She's also won the Nobel Prize. And I'm not saying that winning the Nobel Prize isn't, you know, um, the the thing that legitimises a writer. But we're talking about, you know, talking about some of the most influential and um, revered writers are not, sitting in a room by themselves with a lump sum in their bank account that kind of never disappears. Um, mm. People are working and, of course, it's incredibly hard to make work when you're working 40 hours a week in a very stressful job. Um, but there are other professions that permit certain kinds of freedoms that you can you can use um, and you don't need to amass a certain amount of money before you can start right you can start without it Mm. yeah I think that's a really good way of looking at it because I also think there's this idea 
um, I don't know, I've maybe been in situations with a group of writers and people will say, and so do you write full time? And it's almost as if you're regarded as more successful, right? Mm. If, oh, you write full time. Whereas really it's systemic, right? Like how much people get paid for their books, what kind of background they had in the first place, what debts they have, what... And I think rather than putting the onus as well on the writer, it's kind of also about these systems. Um, and I was really interested in what you said about how kind of writers are often exploited by other people who work in the arts. So, you know, many majority of writers um, have precarious incomes, especially if that's their only job um, or even if it's not. And but often there are people making like, you know, like really good salaries from that work. So people like um, agents, publishers, people who work in the publishing industry, academics. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about your relationship to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, in my book, I made the very cheeky suggestion to put in a tithe system. So anyone who, mm. who earns a living from art should have to, you know, pay five or 10% of their income and that goes into a pool and then it gets redistributed to the artists. But that's a very cheeky way of saying that um, actually this is a, like a very wealthy industry that's actually a lot of money flying around. Um, and when you start talking about universities, it's, there's even more money flying around. Um, and I think that, again, like my politics tell me that the solution to um, poverty is the redistribution of resources. And I don't think that that should be solely um, for the arts industries. I think that, like, you know, every society benefits from reaping um, the rewards of their labour and resources need to be shared and not hoarded. Um, so I guess, like, there's there's always been that kind of, like, artists' um, UBI um, idea in circulation. And, I mean, even the universal UBI would empower more people to have the time to read and wonder if maybe they could write or do whatever else they want to do in their lives without having to be constantly um, working, degrading underpaid jobs. Um, but even that is a kind of, it's, it's not globalist enough for me in the sense that you're still relying on um, kind of labor exploitation in the less wealthy countries um, that are, you know, in those and indebted countries from the colonial um, networks of exploitation. So, I mean, it's basically what I'm saying is the solution is revolution and anything (laughs) short is really not going to make me very happy. Um, There are, you know, these kind of systems in, in the meantime, that help and I I guess the problem is so you've got these like cow we've got copyright copyright agency limited in Australia where you get some payments if you're some of your work is taught at university for example you'll get I don't know $20 I don't know what it is um and you've got a library system where you get paid for the lending rights in a library and over time these can kind of accumulate to you know after you've got 10 books out and you're you know 60 years old or whatever you can start having a middle class salary from all of those different bits you know around your career but I do worry that those kind of um token payments come far too late for most writers most people drop out by then and so yeah I think that a radical redistribution of the world's riches. I'd be very pleased with that. 
on the carrying on the topic of revolution, I wondered if we could talk a bit about um, an essay you wrote that was called I Want to Live in a Classless Society. So yeah, in that essay, you write at one point that you want to live in a classless society, but one that tolerated beauty. And elsewhere in Blueberries, you write about Rosa Luxemburg. And I think quoting Rosa Luxemburg wrote, politics is not removed from the way that sun kisses your neck at the hour before sunset. Politics is the pleasure in the body and the imagination too. So yeah, I wonder if we, could, if you could expand on this idea of like wanting to live in a classless society, but one that tolerated beauty. <laughs> um, it's probably just a comment on being around um, highly politicized collectives where I felt like a total freak because I'm wearing some kind of outrageous outfit and everyone else is wearing a hoodie and runners and I refuse, like I've never worn a hoodie. I don't want to. It's ugly. <laughs> I won't participate in hoodie culture and... I just don't, to me, they're completely compatible, right? Beauty and, um, and equality. And there's been a kind of false, um, divide that like that the decorative arts, because, because of the, um, the art industry, basically, they're kind of associated with the bourgeoisie. And then to be pure, to be politically pure and morally pure, you have to have this kind of Protestant ugliness going on. Um, and I reject that. And I was just, um, I was reading recently for a for, the, for something that I'm writing, I was rereading um, the Master's Tools Audre Lorde essay. And her, the first line, I was like, this describes it. She says, the quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live. And that's form and content are not separate, right? Like the argument for radical redistribution of resources, for example, doesn't mean you radically distribute ugliness into the world so that everything is kind of flat and beige and um, and uniform. You can radically redistribute the, <laughs> the, the means of beauty, um, which is kind mm. of decorative and, um, and perhaps frivolous and fun as well. Yeah, I think just like there was something you wrote in, I think it was the essay literature of sadness about this distinction between inverted commas political literature and political reading and about the kind of way in which there is this particular kind of inverted commas for those that are listening political (laughs) literature which was like I guess a version of a kind of poverty porn which really like actually disenfranchised working class people made their lives look grim full of like victimhood and like took all the agency out so is that idea of political literature versus political reading connected to, to kind of what you're saying that absolutely and just I mean there's a I guess I was probably thinking about various examples of that sort of um Victorian social realism that I read as a teenager where like someone has a vision problem and they can't afford glasses and then they're blind and then they're like they can't work at the button factory anymore and it's just kind of misery 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 and then the kind of I love Ken Loach, but that kind of um, the energy mm. of Ken Loach, most of Ken Loach's films, where it's just like, oh my god, I want to slash my wrists after watching them. Um, but in Australia, there's also a kind of realist tradition in contemporary fiction, where, and I don't think that I mean, it's not like everyone who wrote this particular kind of book was not a working class person or didn't have experiences of you know being um, socialized in working class you know life. But that when it came to the literary, many of them were not, though. But when it came to um, bringing those experiences into literature, you had to kind of like, 
bypass all personality and all humor and Mm -hmm. all surprises and all coincidences and all the kind of like the things about ordinary life for everyone on earth including including working class people in Ken Loach films and Ken Loach does have a sense of humor you know I love him Mm -hmm. um but it's like it's not real like it's a realism that deletes um very important parts of life and the important parts of life being collectivity humor um ridiculousness frivolity um pleasure which everyone experiences um even in Mm. the most destitute situations and people actually Mm. i mean you can become the most you know in my life i feel like i've become the most frivolous i've ever been when i've been in the worst kind of um when i've been suffering the worst material conditions There was um, a line that I loved um, about consumption, uh, kind of like getting at the idea, like going back to what you're saying about sort of like everyone in a hoodie (laughs) and trainers and this sort of aesthetic idea, maybe that's kind of evolved in certain leftist spaces and the idea that like all consumption is bad, any kind of consumption is evil. (laughs) And um, I loved how you wrote about the way that people who have less consume more openly and decadently. I can't remember the exact quote, but you mm. said something like fine dining on a teacher's salary, mm. uh, girls at school in juicy couture tracksuits. Uh, but that feels so true and it felt really refreshing to read that, this idea that like, well, it's not as binary as just like all consumption is bad because everyone's consuming for different reasons from different standpoints. I was wondering what you think about that. I think that the consumption of individuals is basically irrelevant, right? Like it's, it can, it's, it's interesting and you can tell a lot about someone by the way that they consume. But what's important is not, you know, someone wearing a $500 coat that looks really beautiful on them if that's the last $500 that they had, you know, and I've wasted money in those kinds of ways before and I will do it again. Um, but that is frankly irrelevant compared to the kinds of like – resources that are being hoarded by like not even the one percent like the point one one of the one percent it's kind of more of an observation isn't it that conspicuous consumption can be can feel really empowering um it can be very pleasurable um it can also be very destructive right you can get like tied into you know if you're living off very little money um, you can get roped into consuming into in ways that you literally can't afford and you can get into debt that way. You can stay in debt. You can, you know, um, and debt for me is like, it's time, right? Like you're, it's, you have to work in the future for the thing that you're consuming. Um, so there are, I think, ways that you can decadently consume without having to in, enslave yourself to the future. You know, everyone is aware that sort of, consumption is bad we need to consume less you know there, there's the planet there's like all these systemic things to think about it's the end of capitalism but I, I think I just appreciated how you acknowledged it's actually way more nuanced than that and how much does that line well consumption is bad really help anything because we're all consuming all the time anyway mm. <laughs> and it's a liberal solution which is what's that like don't individually consume while corporations consume on your behalf like it's not a real Mm. radical sentiment it doesn't correct anything it just Mm. kind of makes you feel guilty about your life which everyone Mm. already feels really guilty all the time Mm. and I think there is an idea about like complicity that I've been thinking about recently which is that I think neoliberalism 
the way that it kind of makes everybody complicit is a way of depoliticizing them. If you think too hard about your own complicities, you start to feel really helpless. You start to feel really guilty. You start to feel like maybe you're an oppressor, right? Like you're in the category of the oppressor. And if you're in the category of the oppressor, you have no place to be talking about revolution or radical social change. And so you kind of step out of that space because you're the one that should be eradicated. But actually everyone has been made complicit in the systems of exploitation and neoliberalism. And so everyone is the oppressor, but we're also oppressing ourselves, right? It's happening inside ourselves and we're doing it to ourselves and therefore doing it to each other. Um, And we just have to not be constantly feeling guilty. Um, We have to feel more empowered to actually say that I have a right to to resist. Yeah, and that kind of like neoliberal emphasis on the individual, it's like a kind of, seems to be a kind of process of refraction. It scrambles you, turns you against people and yourself in some different dimension of it who are actually way more horizontal to you and you could allied with as opposed to like turning the direction at those 0.01% the governments with all the corruption embedded in it you know so it feels like a very specific strategy and tactic from like those in elite power basically oh yeah and I think it, I mean it's worked um <clears throat> in many ways it's worked but it's also I mean it's happened it's not it's not just happening on a kind of moral level I think there's an economics that holds it together which is that kind of bringing people there's a term that I think is might be useful which is capitalization which is the kind of process of turning everything into a market commodity and bringing humans into that structure and when you're like you you envision your life as a um as a, a part of a capitalist framework you are in competition with others. You are kind of like um, responsible for your own fate. Um, and even in the moral economy, you're, you're responsible for kind of um, ranking yourself somewhere in the hierarchy because there's, you know, because we can't, we're not entitled to uh, living a decent life, right? We're not entitled to it. We have to earn it with our hard work and you have to demonstrate your hard work. And maybe one of the ways that you demonstrate your hard work is by... Um, throwing others under the bus or stripping yourself of your personality. Thinking through in in Blueberries, like one of the recurring um, kind of nodes of it that seems really important is the idea of airspace and home, particularly in the essay that's called Houses. But linked to our earlier questions around like revealing the day-to-day of like what it means to live as a writer and you know be precarious and all that kind of stuff but in houses i guess what felt really powerful is it was both like a searing critique of gentrification and multiple housing crises that all three of us i think can definitely uh vouch for within our own lives in that essay go through kind of places you've encountered and lived but then it kind of moves towards like a more expansive idea of what home might mean and that really like surprised me then like went into all sorts of ideas around history and ancestry. You write about how the communities of the dead haunters create possibility of imagining a home that is, quote, rich and interior and not connected to buildings or wealth or authorised belonging. So, yeah, I wondered what this, like, more expansive idea of home means to you and why that was important for you to write about in that essay. Do you know, it's been so long since I wrote that essay and I only recently, you know, when you, you're kind of revising 
like long after you've written something. I now have the answer that I was seeking. <laughs> um, but I have changed my, I don't know if I had a really definitive idea of what a home is. I think I was feeling really deracinated when I wrote that essay. I was kind of bouncing around from place to place, from house to house, um, trying to find somewhere that I could kind of stay for longer than, you know, the one year lease or whatever. Um, and in that process, I ended up living somewhere where I'm like, I'm really not at home. Like I'm not, you know, around Anglophones. Um, I'm not connected to family here. So I'm very much a kind of foreigner. And so that's kind of made me feel like I have to, um, think about what, like, how can I, cause you need to feel like you belong somewhere otherwise you feel you know as I said deracinated and there is it something about like being a settler in Australia having a kind of inbuilt sense of deracination because you're very conscious of the fact that even if your family line goes back a few generations that it's not very long to spend in a country and the means by which they arrived there caused grave harm to people who already lived there so you don't feel good about it you know um and it also kind of most people in Australia have some kind of migrant background as well right most people not everyone um and so you kind of have this sense that like well if my parents moved then it's not a huge deal. I can probably move to another country and make it work. It's possible. Migration is a possibility, which I don't think you get as much in countries where like, or like where you feel like you, your family has been there for, you know, thousands and thousands of years and you know their names or something. Um, I can't imagine that kind of um, sense of belonging. So the, there's some, I came across something. I'm writing an essay about Charmaine Clift at the moment, the Australian um, writer, um, and she lived on Idra for about 10 years. And there's a paper I read about her and someone said something like, <laughs> um, home is a place where you can kind of make a positive social change. And that really struck me, um, for various reasons. And one of them is that I've been living in Greece and feeling like I'm alienated from the possibility of making a positive, positive social change. But at the same time, the longer I live here, like that's when you first arrive in a place, you don't know anyone. And the longer you stay there, the more kind of inroads you find into local communities, friendship communities, you meet their family members, um, and you feel more kind of held and supported in a place. And then you start kind of stepping into the political sphere as well. And so there's sort of um, local issues that we can participate in because we're a member of a neighbourhood. Um, and there are kind of other political communities that you can be around. Um, and it doesn't mean that, like, I'm individually producing a social change myself, like I've just invented something, but that feeling that you can be a part of um, something collective that's not negative, <laughs> that... Mm-hmm. that hopes to bring something positive into the world um, gives you a sense of um, future in a place as well because you want to be there to, to see that positive thing happen. Um, and it's also taught me a little bit about the kind of, like I was in the UK, I'm sort of teaching in the UK at the moment on a short contract um, and just going to the UK, I've never lived there before, and being there for like a semester 
and feeling like, oh, I speak English and I am a white person. And so I can kind of like without having, I don't, I can bypass all of those steps in the UK um, and feel like I can participate in a positive social thing without having to make any connections on my own. And so that's the kind of privilege of a person like me moving around the world is that I can step into certain communities or certain nation states and be recognized as one of us. And that's, um, yeah, a kind of, that's been brought about by so, so many violent processes. So it's not something to be proud of, but it's something that I've definitely observed. So I think something that is so brilliant about your essays, and I think it also comes across in the way that you speak, is that they're very political and outward looking, but they're kind of written from personal experience at the same time. And in the final essay in the collection, Anti-Memoir, um, you say, what kind of body makes a memoir? And then you have these voices kind of interrogating. And so what gives you the right, because I wanted to? And I wondered if you could just speak about maybe first what you mean by the term anti-memoir and then secondly kind of what your relationship to it is. I think I came across the term in a, um, a publication called Chain and the title of it was from like the 90s. You can find it online. I'll find the PDF and I'll send it to you so you can make it available to your read- to your listeners. Um, and it was called memoir, anti-memoir, and it was a kind of intervention from this, from, I think Barney Kappel was in it, right? She's kind of talked about this concept before, um, Eileen Miles was in it. A few more kind of, of those like writers in the, in, in, you know, Barney's British, but she was in the States for a really long time. Um, mostly American writers who were kind of doing what we would call life writing now, memoir but with a very like strong political um they they were resisting the term memoir because it was such a kind of um co-opted I think Anne Boyer has uh you know she says that it like I I'm not writing a memoir because memoirs are by property owners um there's a sense that like the memoir implies that there is this really kind of um, solid sense of individual sovereignty and subjectivity around the writing body, right? Um, and you feel protected by that and then you can articulate this story. I don't think that's necessarily true in memoir, but I think that it is like it is a claim that's been made that is important to consider when you're writing memoir. And so this idea of anti-memoir is to do life writing, to do like to write about your life and to, and to see yourself as a le- legitimate speaking subject. Um, without endorsing that version of memoir that kind of insists on your specialness and individuality. Um, One of the books that I came across when I was kind of thinking about memoir, anti-memoir, and and trying to understand it was a um, wonderful memoir by James Allen McPherson called Crab Cakes. Um, And one of the things that he does is he uses like the pronouns keep slipping and so you're not sure. You know, he's he's kind of telling you to read him as if he's you, as if he's anyone else, as if he's a he, she, they, whatever. And the, sl- the slipping kind of, it, it really works. Like that can be a cheesy gimmick, right? I mean, I'm sure we've all tried to do it at some point and it's felt really um, painfully obvious. He does it in a way that is not painfully obvious and it's incredibly kind of sophisticated and beautiful and extremely painful. Um 
And so I was very moved by that book um, to think about, you know, how can I write about my life and not, um, and not insist on a happy ending and not insist on the narrative arc where you are born, you struggle, and then you, uh, you know, you get married and then you're happy. And actually a lot of memoirs, I've noticed, I noticed a trend, which I really, 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 really hate. I hate it so much, but, um, I shouldn't say it out loud because it might sound sexist actually, but so many memoirs that I read, um, at a certain point in my life when I was reading a lot of memoirs, particularly about sexual assault, the, the final scene in all of them was the woman, the survivor on the beach, looking out at the water, everything's okay now. And it's like, well, maybe it's not okay. <laughs> you know? Or maybe, or maybe it was always okay. You know, like it following these kind of, um, narrative, expectations can feel really false and and false to the extent that they're kind of dehumanizing and they're erasing the complexity um and the interlinkedness of of our stories um yeah so that's kind of what i meant by anti-memoir just coming to ideas there of like of of time and like like uh, pushing against this idea of linear time and chronology in your essays I think like one of the most striking essays in which that happens is in the one that's titled Museum of Rape and I guess I was interested in that like the way in which you I mean the title itself obviously has museum in it but like the way in which you use the idea of the catalogue and then subvert it in so many ways the catalogue being something that has been which you touched on historically used by colonial patriarchal imperial systems to kind of like fix in place individual objects or people. But in your catalogue in that essay, it is far more slippery and far more kind of surreal in lots of ways. So, yeah, why did you want to use the catalogue form and then kind of like subvert it in such a way? Um, That one is actually my favourite in this collection. Um, (laughs) And it did actually start, I had this like, I don't know, this idea where I was going to write the Museum of Rape um, like the either the catalogue for a fictional exhibition or maybe a kind of a, a map of the layout of, you know, I was going to do something like it's, it felt it felt a little bit obvious, um, but I was trying to do that at the at the start. And then I sort of I started writing and it kind of went in these different directions. And I realised I was kind of like I was kind of writing about myself, you know, <laughs> and a part of writing about, it wasn't just about myself. It was about the kind of what, you know, I make this claim in this essay that, that rape is a part of the genetic inheritance of every human, because I mean, I think it's kind of, it might not be perfectly true, but it's probably deeply true um, that we all, you know, inherit we all come from a single um, person, pre-person, um, and rape was a very ordinary way of reproducing until very recently in human history. Um, and this does structure societies in some way and gender relations in some way. Um, and what it also does is it kind of, it's this idea of proliferation 
which is very frightening because it's kind of, it's the twin of fragmentation. Um, and I think when I was writing this essay, I was thinking very much about, actually this whole collection is about fragmentation. And I only recently came, realized that proliferation is kind of its, um, its other face, which, you know, it's instead of breaking down, it's kind of multiplying. Um, and both of them are very terrifying concepts because you're supposed to be, uh, um, you know, a sovereign individual um, with a clear identity. I think very few of us actually inhabit that sense of security. Most of us are proliferating, fragmenting, um, anxious beings. Um, and one way to kind of write about that in relation to a history of rape in every every kind of um, person's um, being is to contain fragmentation and contain it in a kind of um, a mock archive. Um, but also doing this, so the it's sort of numbered, but it's 1.0, 2.0, 17.1, you know, 17.0, 17.1, et cetera, et cetera. And there's also little parts in it where, um, so in 11.0, I say the feeling is devotion. And then in brackets, I have 5.2, 8.2. And so you can kind of read it as you can get, kind of go back to 5.2 and reread the, I know what it's like to fall into an abyss. So I kind of imagined it as um, voices coming into each other in a performance kind of, so it could be a kind of museum artifact, this essay, but it has to happen in your brain. In some ways, thinking about form and things that are fractured is also kind of linked to the way you depict memory. Um, and you write a lot about the unreliability of memory. I'm thinking about within Yellow City, but in, I think your other essays interrogate this as well. And there's a quote, if memory is not a tape recorder starting at zero, then how can a self exist truly? And I know this essay in particular is kind of talking about um, memory and trauma or sexual trauma, but you have you kind of develop this technique of these different voices interrupting each other. So we have sort of the present tense narrator, what could be read as her past self or her self-doubts. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about how you came to find that form and also why you're interested in like addressing these kind of misrepresentations of or, re or just representations of events? Um, so first of all, that's an homage to um, Natalie Sarot's childhood. Um, it's a wonderful memoir from the 80s. And, I mean, she uses that style. She, you know, she, she did it first. Um, and I, I think when I, um, when I read that book, Childhood, I, I'd been wanting to write that essay, Yellow City, for 10 years and I just couldn't find a way in. It always felt really false. I didn't know what the end of the story was. I couldn't rely on my memory. Um, and then I had this opportunity to, um, for listeners who haven't read the essay, it's about a sexual assault when I was 18 and I was backpacking in Portugal. And then when I was 29, I did a little artist residency and went back for a month and I just wanted to find the court documents from um, the proceedings that followed the investigation um, because I really couldn't remember what had happened to me by then. I'd kind of, I had an idea, but I, I also was very conscious of the fact that people talk about traumatized memory as though it's significantly different from other kinds of memory. But I think it's like anything that happened 11 years ago is 
pretty vague in most people's memories. The essay is a kind of documentation of that process. The second question was why am I interrogating that kind of that sense of memory? And I think that goes back to something I was saying earlier um, to do with memoir and narrative where, you know, you're born, you struggle, and then eventually you win, you know, and then the end is really happy. Um, and that's extremely false, um, which is not to say that people shouldn't, you know, be happy at the end. Sometimes that is true, but that's not the order of things in life or, you know, life is chaotic. Um, and so it's a way of doing memoir or doing anti-memoir really, which is not purporting to be the sole authority on my own life or engaging the various, like various aspects of my personality to interrogate my own narrative, um, and to challenge my own narrative because there are so many ways in which we remember that serves our peace and comfort and that can be that can be that can help you survive right like that that can be extremely necessary and something i realized after i didn't really include it in the essay but the court documents that i did find you know the way that i had remembered or not remembered was something that i could live with basically and when i found the court documents and i didn't write about them explicitly in the essay was that actually what had happened was much, much worse. And it was very um, interesting and kind of disturbing. For me. I mean, extremely disturbing. I, I haven't looked at those documents ever since. And I kind of, I don't want to, I don't want to know the truth of that encounter because it's actually too gruesome. Um, but when you, and so I'm kind of thanking my faulty memory for allowing me to live with a version that I can tolerate. Um, and so in that, but I mean, if, if your brain is doing that for you to tolerate, um, you know, hideous, cruel encounters, it might also be doing that with your encounters that make you feel really, um, proud and safe as well. And so these ideas about are like a self that's kind of impenetrable and kind of, um, sovereign and autonomous. This is also like it's a fantasy. Like your brain has done something to make it possible for you to believe these things. And, and, it, and it's, it is important to deconstruct that fantasy and to find out, um, which kind of, you know, that we're all proliferating, fragmenting beings, um, that are really hard to piece together and really hard to describe as uniform, um, creatures or subjects. Um, and so the project of even doing that seems to me dishonest. Or it seems like kind of an important place to be situated as a non-fiction writer or someone who has written a non-fiction book to kind of think about, well, where really are the boundaries of kind of memory, truth, fiction? And I know um, in Holidays with Men, you talk about um, having written something based on a relationship between two real people and them kind of taking that badly. But I guess... Or, well, I guess it's like, do we have a responsibility to sort of protect people as writers? But then also, are you truly representing them anyway? Or, you know, to, to what, like, where's the boundary within that, I guess, is what I'm asking. Oh, my God, the boundary. I mean, I've come to learn that the boundary, I've kind of grown up since the first iteration of Holidays with Men, which I rewrite about in the book. It was something that I'd written in my early 20s and published in a little zine. Um, I never expected anyone who I'd written about to read it because it was a scene. It's probably like 50 copies of it circulating around Melbourne. 
And then, of course, years later, someone sent me an email or a message and they were like, I just read that thing. You, you were talking about me. I found it really hurtful. And I, it never occurred to me that she would read it, right? And I felt so ashamed and I should have been ashamed. It was actually very cruel what I'd done. And it wasn't, I hadn't said something awful, but I'd kind of, I'd written about a very intimate thing that had happened between two people that I'd been the witness to and I turned it into a joke, which is cruel, right? And I absolutely didn't have the right to do that. And I wouldn't do that again, or I would try not to. Um, I, th- I think that I feel fairly strongly that it's important to respect the people that you're writing about as people, even if the representation is never really entirely accurate. It's, you know, it's so warped by your own perspective. Um, and so I tend to, when I've written about someone, unless I just forget because, it, you know, I have forgotten at certain points, but um, I tend to, tend to just send them what I've written and say like, hey, heads up, this is, I've just written about you. Is this okay what I've said? And most of the time they're like, you wrote about me? Do it more, make it more about me, you know? <laughs> um, and that kind of feels a lot better to do that than to just surprise people. I would also say that like, the difference between me writing in my early twenties and me writing now is that like, I, it's hard to accept your own power as a writer. And I don't mean like the power of me. I mean, literally, um, when you have the, the, when you're figuring others in a way that is going to lie, you know, it might book might go out of print this year. The few thousand copies that are in circulation will turn to dust, you know, but I've still had a lot more power to describe people's lives than most people have who, who don't write and in that kind of narrative way. Um, and that's a huge responsibility. Um, it's hard to accept that power when you're 22 and you're writing for a zine because you don't think that anyone, you, you actually don't think that anyone's going to read it. And so you think that you're writing privately when in fact you're pu- publishing publicly. Um, and so now I understand that if you write about someone, they will find it. Like, doesn't matter. They'll read it. Does, they will find a way to find what you've written about them. It'll always get back to them. And so you have to be willing to, um, to have an awkward encounter. And it's best a lot nicer to not do that. To, well, to give people a heads up or just make a boundary um, in your writing and write it in the draft and then take it out if it's someone that's close or someone who you stand to actually really hurt because humans are much more important than the silly books that we write. (laughs) I think relationships are more important than our literary careers. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.